You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In the early 14th century, one of the figures of Christian intellectual genius gave us the Commedia, a pilgrim's allegorical journey through Inferno and Purgatorio and Paradiso for the sake of his soul. Rod Dreher's latest book claims, with its very title, a place for that poem in the 21st century. It's called How Dante Can Save Your Life, the life-changing wisdom of history's greatest poem. Dreher has graciously agreed to join us on Christian Humanist Profiles to talk Dante. And you listeners know that such a chat is always going to encompass psychology and politics and art and philosophy and ultimately what's at stake when we venture to say something about God. Welcome to the show, Rod. Thanks for having me on, Nathan. Well, I want to start off by situating this book's events in your web career, since that's where most of our listeners are going to know you. Uh, you established yourself as one of the big voices for traditionalist conservatism in the Internet era several years ago. Now, when this book comes out, you've already been the crunchy conservative for a decade or more. You've published the corresponding book. And after your sister's funeral, you have decided that it's time to move back to Louisiana for good. What happens then? Well, I thought I'd reached the end of my journey by circling back home to my hometown in South Louisiana. And that's what my book, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, was supposed to be about, the, the chronicling of, of going home again. And uh, it turned out to have been not the end of a journey, but the beginning of a much more arduous journey, but I think a more profound one. Because what happened was my family here in Louisiana did not accept me back. They, my my mother and father were here, and uh, and my my sister, my late sister's husband, and their three children. I uh, they we, we we get along fine, I should say. But I learned after only after I moved back from my my niece Hannah, my sister's oldest daughter, who is just about the only one in the family who will tell the unvarnished truth. That's both her virtue and her vice. But <laughs> she told me, listen, Uncle Rod, I don't think that my sisters are going to relate to you because our mother raised us to think you were bad. I said, wait, what? She said that she raised us to think you were bad. You left home. You left our, what she means is I left this country town. I turned my back as far as my sister and my father, their, the girl's grandfather, was concerned on the family patrimony. Uh, and even though I was back now with my family doing everything I thought I was supposed to do to make my dad happy, it wasn't going to be enough because there was no way to erase the sin in their mind of having left in the first place. And everything Hannah said proved to be true. Um, my, I have no relationship with, with her family, uh, with her, her dad and her sisters, and uh, uh, only a tenuous relationship with my mom and dad. And they don't see that there's anything wrong with this because, after all, if I hadn't left in the first place, none of this would happen. What happened to me in the light of this, as I fell in, once I realized how things really were, it was a kind of apocalypse in the sense of an unveiling. When I, I realized that beneath the happy family facade of, of my clan, there was actually deep, deep division, and now the impossibility, seeming impossibility, of reconciliation, because my, my nieces weren't going to go against their sainted mother's wishes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I fell into a deep depression. I became physically ill. I was diagnosed with chronic mononucleosis, uh, 
went to a rheumatologist who looked, checked me out and said, no, you definitely have chronic mono, but there's no reason for it other than intense stress. He said, what are you stressed over? I told him. I said, I've dreamed all my life of all my work has been about finding roots and finding a sense of home and a sense of place and unity and harmony with the family. I've come home in search of that, thinking I was going to find it, and it turns out not only not to be there, but not possible to ever find. He said, well, you have to leave Louisiana. Or you're going to destroy your health. Mm-hmm. I said, I can't do that. I've moved my wife and my kids around the country too many times. Besides my mom and dad, even though they can be difficult, they're all I have, and, I, and, and I'm all they have. I need to stay here with them. He said, well, you better find inner peace some kind of way, or you're not going to make it. And so that's what brought me to Dante. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of those interesting dynamics in this book is that, you know, the the expectations that your family seems to have, I mean, resonates a great deal with, again, what a lot of our listeners are going to recognize as part of your intellectual project, namely reclaiming the small, reclaiming the local. And yet, I mean, you know, it turned out to be something, as the book goes along, a lot more complex than you first anticipated. Is that, is that a fair way to read it? Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I I can understand my previous books and my previous intellectual and spiritual project in life uh, only now in, in light of what happened after my return to Louisiana. I I grew up in a very close family. Uh, we, my our dad, my dad, he's still alive. He was just this towering patriarchal figure, a classic Southern small town patriarch or country patriarch. And he was and is a very good man. He was so tender to Ruthie and me and, um, you know, exactly the sort of wizened father figure that everybody wants. But the problem with it is he didn't know what he didn't know. And mm-hmm. he was really frustrated that he had a son, uh, a son he named after himself, who was so unlike him. My dad was a big hunter, a fisherman, a sportsman. He loved fixing things. He loved working on his farm. He was a man of action. And he had a son who was uh, a man of, or a boy of contemplation. I wanted to read all the time. I didn't want to go outside. I wasn't good at sports. I had a very tender heart and didn't like to to kill animals. But uh, I I kept forcing myself to do these things that violated my conscience and made me feel horrible because I wanted the approval of my father in the worst way. My sister, who loved all these things, I, I joke that she's the son my dad never had, <laughs> because she was she was with him at all times. She loved doing everything he liked to do, but she was the girl. I mean, they had a great relationship, don't get me wrong. My dad was actually probably fairly progressive in that way, I, I think you might say. But I was the son, and in Southern families, the, the firstborn son, and in my case, the only son, have certain expectations, and I broke under my dad's unreasonable expectations and left home at 16 for a boarding school, thought I would never come back, because not only because of my dad, but because of this, this little town we live in, St. Francisville, a town of 1,700 people, very narrow, good people, but you could only go within a certain narrow set of confines, you know, for your for the kind of person you were allowed to be. And I didn't fit that. I was bullied in school, and I wasn't the only one. So I put it all behind me, thinking, I can't live there. I cannot harmonize with this place. And I'm using Dantean language because that's how I came to understand it later. 
Um, and then uh, in the after 30 years away and the death of my sister, I saw this place I came from with very different eyes. I realized that Ruthie, who was struck down by cancer uh, at age 42, um, she it was lung cancer. She never smoked a day in her life, but she was by the time she was diagnosed, it was too late. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw this town carry my sister and her family through the worst time, through the darkest wood, and they carried them in love. And I realized that my sister had had could count on this because she had been here all her life. She, I chose to leave. She chose to come home, marry her high school sweetheart, and teach in the local school. She led a very ordinary life, but I could see in the light of how she met her death and the way the people of the town walked with her to that death, I saw true holiness and true spiritual greatness, and I, I wanted a part of it. The town itself, now that we've moved back, I came back with my wife and three kids in Philadelphia. The town has been fine. We we love living here. We have a broader family that has accepted us. The problem for me is that the main reason we came back for my sister's family and my mom and dad, that just didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, honestly, you know, the narrative that runs through this book parallel to the reflections on Dante, uh, I don't know statistically how many readers will resonate with it, but uh, if you substituted you know southern indiana coal mine country for south louisiana to a large extent you're telling my story so i i certainly resonated with a lot of the stories that you're telling here i want to turn to the the dante part of the book though before your book starts in earnest you make a couple claims that i'll admit i found unsettling you refer to this volume as a sort of self-help volume and you say that a reader needn't be Catholic or even Christian to benefit from Dante. Now, how do you anticipate that a broad audience like this will receive such an idiosyncratically Catholic, Aristotelian, Florentine poet? That's a great question. I, I think that's one reason why so many people stay away from Dante. They, they think it is so remote from their own experience. That was certainly how I approached Dante, or rather failed to approach Dante, I, when I was in the bookstore, so sick a couple summers ago, and there in the, I was in the poetry section where I don't belong. I don't read poetry. <laughs> I barely read fiction. But there I was, and there on the shelf in front of me was the Divine Comedy. And it was like standing at the foot of Mount Everest uh, and realizing that you're an amateur. You'll never be able to scale this peak. But I pulled it off the shelf anyway, and I don't know what, why I did what I did, but I opened it up in the first lines struck me and set the hook they are in the middle of the journey of our life i came to myself in a dark wood for i had lost the straight path instantly i said that is me that is where i am i'm 46 years old i'm in the middle of my life i thought i had made it home but in fact i've landed into a in a dark wood and don't know how to get out of it and i kept reading the first couple of cantos and where Dante is there in the dark wood and he can't leave because his sins in the form of wild animals won't let him out. The shade of Virgil, the ghost of the great poet, appears to him, sent by God, and says, I can show you the way out, but you have to trust me. Mm-hmm. Dante doesn't have any choice. He's lost. He's going to die if he stays there. So he follows Virgil, and they go into hell, and then, of course, up the holy mountain and through paradise. I only read the first couple of cantos and was completely mesmerized, but I didn't buy the book that day because I have a bad habit of 
buying books in a bookstore and planning to read them but never getting around to it. And mm -hmm. if there ever was a book that was going to be that way, it was a divine comedy for me. But I couldn't get it out of my mind. I ended up ordering it a week or so later and started reading and was absolutely gobsmacked by how relevant it was. I thought this would be the most inaccessible poetry. It's a 700-year-old poem, but it's a real story. It's it's exciting. It's, um, it is just mesmerizing. It drew me in, and uh, I ended up reading at the same, around the same time I was encountering poem. I was reading books about the poem, and it turns out that Dante himself said in a letter to one of his patrons that he wrote this poem to bring his readers from a state of misery to a state of joy. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was, in a way, it was the first self-help book and greatest self-help book. <laughs> when I put it that way, people say, oh, you're, you're making it sound very trite. I don't mean it that way at all. I mean this thing to sound accessible because it is the highest poetry, no, no question about that. But it is so deep and so high and so elevated, but it is also so accessible. And that's what I want to try to convey to the readers of How Dante Can Save Your Life. If he can read somebody like me who doesn't even read poetry... He can reach anybody. Mm -hmm. Well, I found myself cheering for you early in the book as you tell your readers what I've tried to tell my own students for some time. And I'm going to quote you here, quote, to read Dante literally is to mis misunderstand him, close quote. Tell our listeners a little bit about some better ways to approach the Commedia. Well, you know, I, you make me realize I've neglected to answer your earlier question, too, about how somebody doesn't even need to be a Catholic or a Christian to profit from Dante, and this mm -hmm. is a way also of answering the question you just asked. Uh, my card's on the table. I'm, a, I'm an ex-Catholic who is now Eastern Orthodox. There are some Orthodox people who wonder how in the world does an Orthodox Christian read this great Catholic poet and learn from him. Well, don't, don't worry, Rod. I teach it at a Pentecostal college. <laughs> well, the, the, the answer there is that um, if you read Dante allegorically, that, uh, that's how he intends to be read. Uh, if you read him, his work is symbolizing different aspects of human nature and the Christian life, and even not only the Christian life, just plain psychology, you can find a way to relate to him. Maybe not precisely the way he would have liked, but you could still get a lot out of him. And I'll, I'll give you an example. The, the three books of the Commedia, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso, are like the journey uh, of the Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery. Mm -hmm. If you think of Inferno as being like the Hebrews stuck in slavery in Egypt, Purgatorio is the wandering in the desert for 40 years when they had to get Egypt out of their soul collectively and individually. And of course, Paradiso is going into the promised land. People think of it that way. That, that gives them a handle on what's going on. I, I tell people who are really nervous about the the, the Catholic aspect of purgatorio, you know, because Orthodox Christians don't believe in purgatorio, and of course neither do Protestants. I say don't look at it as a literal description of what purgatory is like. You're supposed to read it as an, as an allegory of this life, and the, the mortal life, of the life after we have accepted Christ, and we're trying to strive towards holiness, because that's what it's all about. It's about being, being stuck here in, the, in mortality, you know, halfway between heaven and hell, striving toward heaven, led, pulled forward by love of God and by, by grace, but always, always, always uh, dealing with the gravity that threatens to pull us back down the mountain to 
toward hell. And when people think of it that way, it makes perfect sense to them, because everybody knows what that's like. Even people who aren't Christians know about the tension between what we aspire to be and what we actually are, and how the passions in our own hearts uh, interfere with our, our and, and compromise our highest ideals. So that's the sort of reading I try to give to this, to this, uh, to the Comedia. But I have to confess, and maybe you can help me understand this better mm-hmm. since you teach uh, the Comedia. Once you get to Paradiso, I really struggle to see how, if you don't have some Christian faith or some faith in God, how that makes a lot of sense to you. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I first of all, I mean, I teach the uh, Inferno to my sophomore literature survey, and then I teach the Purgatory to my upper division English majors. So, I've never actually taught the Paradiso. So I'm I'm kind of in the same position you are in that respect. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would say that because the Paradiso really is rooted in this Augustinian vision of God as the highest. Um, object of love uh it is something that's very difficult to translate and and now that you say that i can see where a book on inferno and purgatorio would be more broadly appealing to readers than the paradiso would precisely for that reason and and that's what my book is my book focuses almost exclusively on inferno and purgatorio Mm -hmm. because that's where most people are that's where i was i I find I've read the entire Commedia three times now, and I know I'll be reading it for the rest of my life, but I find with each subsequent reading that the Paradiso makes more sense to me, and it is fast becoming my favorite of the three books because it's so difficult. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I think, though, that partly the, your, one's ability to understand what's going on in Paradiso depends on one's spiritual progress. Uh, because it seems that the the more I, the deeper I get into the spiritual life, the more I I'll read Paradiso and think, oh, I see that, I see what he means here, and I I, I think that's a very Dantean uh, way to to experience the pilgrimage too. That the, the more the, clo- the more you go into God, the the more you can relate to what is what's being said there. Notice I say go into God, because this this is something that's so difficult, I think, for moderns to understand. We think of God as being somehow separate from us. We're the Mm -hmm. heirs to to the Renaissance and to to nominalism, philosophical nominalism, and where we think of God as a being among other beings. That's not how Dante sees it. That's not how the Christians saw it prior to 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 the Renaissance. They saw God as the ground of all being, any idea of separation between God and ourselves and reality is ultimately an illusion, an illusion we choose through our own ego and pride. It's a very heavy thing to say, but um, I have found it, frankly, very liberating. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, since you've, since you've brought up the realist-nominalist dispute, I think that might be why Paradiso really does require a conversion to appreciate it. Uh, because, you know, if, if Richard Weaver's right that, you know, our age is, is a nominalist age, as he argues in Ideas Have Consequences, then it really does require a, conver- a conversion into a kind of philosophical realism to say that goodness really is the essence, and anything that is departing from goodness is somehow fallen. And that's not the way that we're accustomed to think about things, I don't think. No, it's not. I'm reading a book right now that the great Ken Myers of Mars Hill Audio Journal recommended to me. It's called The Theological Origins of Modernity. Yes, yes, and, a fine and, book. Uh, 
you know, it's fantastic, and it's really opening my eyes to a lot of things about how so many of, of our ideas, our commonly received ideas about the nature of reality and of God and his relationship to us, are all historically conditioned. Mm-hmm. You know, I, when I became an Eastern Orthodox Christian back in 2006, someone told me it's going to take you 10 years to start thinking like an Orthodox. <laughs> I didn't understand what that meant. That, that, that seemed kind of arrogant and weird to me. Well, I see what they mean by now, because the Orthodox world was not, did not have the experience of nominalism, which you know, was the, the idea that the only things we can know for sure are ourselves and the things we could touch. Mm-hmm. And that I, we can't really know for sure about I, the world of the ideal. And Orthodoxy never experienced that fall, and so it still holds to the older vision that you see in, in, in Dante, in the Commedia. For me as an Orthodox Christian to read Dante, and especially the Paradiso, was to have my eyes open to how much in common uh, Dante's Christianity, medieval Catholicism, how much it had in common with contemporary Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, it was breathtaking. Yesterday we had our bishop, our, our Orthodox bishop, visiting our little mission parish here in the country. I gave him a copy of How Dante Can Save Your Life and said, you are going to be surprised by how Orthodox Dante is. <laughs> yeah, he, he cocked his eye at me and said, really? I said, really? Just read this book. So uh, we'll see. Well, and that's fascinating, too, because I, and again, I had never thought about this connection. I just thought that because they are alien in general, you know, they tended to uh, have a greater impact on students. But really, the two authors that I, I'll, actually, I'll say the three authors that I teach that uh, shake up students' worlds more than any others are precisely Dante and Dostoevsky and Plato. And it occurs to me that, I mean, none of those three have any uh, nominalism in them at all. No, no. no. <laughs> so that, 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 that's something I'm going to have to think about some more. This is pretty good stuff. Well, I, and I have to tell you, I, I think that um, we are at a really difficult stage in the life of Christianity in the West. I've come, the deeper I've gone into Dante and, and into uh, thinking about nominalism in, in light of what Richard Weaver said, because that was what helped me to become a conservative, is reading Ideas Have Consequences mm-hmm. back in mm-hmm. college. Although I'm. I hope my students are listening. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, I, I'm a different sort of conservative. Than, I'm not your, your garden variety Republican at all, but uh, Weaver's talking about something much deeper. Uh, but I, I think that we are in the West right now at a pretty fateful moment, and I, I see that the, the outworking of nominalism in, in popular culture, uh, in, in, the, in the church itself, I was just touring around different Christian colleges uh, mm-hmm. talking about Dante, and to talk to professors, I'm talking at Catholic and evangelical colleges, and to hear them say how little their students seem to know about the faith and what the faith requires and what the faith offers, mm-hmm. it's just it's very discouraging to me. And I have to be hearing all these things at the same time that I'm reading about nominalism and how these events, these seemingly obscure events in the Middle Ages, have had dramatic, even catastrophic effects seven centuries later on all of us today, it's been a real education. So I, I think Dante, reading Dante in a way, is a, is a way to leap back over the centuries and get in touch with the lived experience and thought of uh, Christians who lived in the first millennium. Oh, faith. sure, sure. And I, and I knew I was doing my job right when uh, two of my former English majors came to visit me in my office and said, uh, when I go to church, they suspect I'm a socialist, and when I go to grad school, they think that I'm a right-winger. 
Well, that's what, in my case, they, people can't get a bead on me. When I was writing a National <laughs> Review, when I started writing about uh, so-called crunchy conservatism, traditionalism, mm-hmm. traditional conservatism, and some of my colleagues there thought I was some sort of crypto-liberal who was out to try to undermine all that is good and holy on the right. And uh, some people on the left, they liked some of the things I was saying, but they could not figure out why I was so sensible about some things, but I just persisted in this crazy conservative Christianity. And I'm like, look, I'm, I believe what I believe in traditional conservatism, Russell Kirk style conservatism, and it doesn't mm-hmm. fit easily into the, the, the neat categories that we have in contemporary American life. Very good, very good. Well, one of the Dantean themes to return to your book that you return to at several points is the notion that disbelief is just as often an act of the will as it is the result of intellectual inquiry. What can our listeners learn from Dante when it comes to how we think about disbelief and rebellion? Boy, that this was such a revelation to me in, in the Commedia. Uh, as Dante himself, Dante and Virgil are going through the, uh, through the inferno, they reach uh, the, the walled city of Dis, which is the hellish version of the New Jerusalem. It's a city that is surrounded by a wall of, of glowing, uh, glowing hot iron. This represents the will, and what Dante, the poet, is trying to tell us <clears throat> is that so often the things that block us from God are our own hardened wills. I could see that so clearly within myself if I reflect on my own Christian journey. <clears throat> I wanted, when I was in college, and I tell the story in how Dante... When I was in college, I wanted so badly to be connected to God. I wanted to be a Christian. But the one thing I did not want to give up was my sexual freedom. Not that I made uh, use of it very often, but I thought that this was the thing that was non-negotiable, that God could have all of me, but he couldn't have that. And, of course, if any God that you're willing to withhold any part of yourself from is not really God. Mm-hmm. So it, just, it wasn't surprising, I suppose, that... My faith, the faith didn't take. The only, and I, I told myself, Nathan, that, well, you know, if I, I, I have these philosophical objections in, in, to, to what Christianity says. In fact, it was all about my will. I didn't want to submit. When I was finally broken by my own behavior and just gave it all to God because I had made such a mess of my own life, that's when the faith became real. So years later, when I'm when I'm back in a dark wood of my own making, uh, I, I began to read the Commedia and began to reflect more deeply on how my own will guided my thinking. And mm-hmm. I guess this is an Augustinian point that, you know, first, you, what you love determines what you think about and how you think about it. In my case, as I say in, in the book, I loved my father and family and place to an extraordinary degree, to a degree that Dante revealed to me was idolatrous. I gave them the place in my heart that really belonged to God. Here's what was so interesting about that for me. Family and place are not bad things. They're very good things. But they, like any good thing, can become evil and a source for our destruction if we give it the place where God, that, that can only be filled by God. In other words, if we make an ultimate end of these things instead of a relative end. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to me. I, it, it was fascinating to get to the level of the inferno uh, where Dante and Virgil are going through the circle of the heretics, which in this particular case meant 
the the people who had died believing that the only thing that existed was this world. There was no afterlife. Well, they, they get to the afterlife, and they have a very rude surprise, and now they have to spend all eternity living in open graves with flames coming out of them. Mm-hmm. But Dante and Bird, the pilgrim Dante, they, they stop there when a, uh, a man rises out of one of these graves. And this is Farinata. He was a, a real man in, in, in Florence, had been a, a leader of the Ghibellines, one of the political parties there. Dante was a Guelph. The Guelphs and the Ghibellines fought a civil war that tore Florence apart. Farinata was a Ghibelline. He rises up, and he's so haughty. He was such a proud man, proud of his, of his family, their name, proud of his city, proud of his deeds, all he had accomplished in life. And there he is in hell. And he, takes, he brings Dante into this political discussion because they were on opposite sides, and they were arguing and putting each other down and trash-talking. And I'm sitting there reading this and thinking, Lord have mercy, this is me and my dad. My dad is Farinata, and I am Dante. And we have been arguing about the meaning of family and place and what matters in life for 30 years. And we've come to a, we're stuck in hell. My dad, for whatever reason, can't leave it. But I have the power, like Dante the Pilgrim, to turn and walk away from it. Mm-hmm. And it was all about my will. I thought, I, I was think, trying to think my way through this, this problem with my, my dad and my family that was making me so spiritually miserable, emotionally depressed, and physically ill. But Dante revealed to me that it was all a matter of the will. I, and, and I went to see my priest and said, I have been an idol worshiper. I have placed all my self-worth, my understanding about what matters in life. I've given it over to my dad, to family, and place when it really belonged to God. I repent of this. As soon as I, re- I identified it and repented of it and realized it was not a problem of thinking, it's a problem of my will, and my, mm-hmm. my, my chronic w- desire to worship at the foot of my dad and a family in place. When I turned from that, that's when a floodgate of grace opened up and I began to get better. Mm-hmm. Well, and honestly, you know, the, the narrative that you just related, I mean, is why I enjoy teaching Dante in conjunction with Plato's Symposium because it is a dialogue from a very different point of view obviously about how the intellectual life is always joined with the life of desire and that you know if you if your desires are pointed in the wrong direction then you're always going to be delusional in some respect yeah you'll rationalize what what you you want to do and we see this is common all over the place it's Mm -hmm. not a liberal thing it's not a conservative thing it's a human thing one of my favorite contemporary theologians is James K.A. Smith, or Jamie mm-hmm. Smith from yeah. Calvin College, young Reformed guy. And uh, his books, Desiring the Kingdom and Imagining the Kingdom, are deeply, deeply Dantean. He would say Augustinian, but it's the same thing, because so, mu- so much of Dante is the commentary on Augustine. Yeah, uh, but he's Reformed. He can't claim too many Catholics. No, 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 he can't. So he, he's walking a thin line here. But, but um, what I love about Jamie's work is he talks about just this thing, that if we desire the kingdom of God, then that will rightly order our thoughts and our actions. But we, we don't realize how much our desires are formed, not by you know, logical, abstract thought, by, by organizing the, the, you know, our, our thoughts and our principles into syllogisms, but by the things we do in daily life, by the way we worship. 
Mm-hmm. And I, uh, as I tell in the in How Dante, I lost my Catholic faith back in 2006, 2005, 2006. Uh, I, I was a, had been a very, very ardent Catholic and a very political Catholic, uh, but I started writing about the sex abuse scandal, but not in spite of being Catholic, but because of the kind of Catholic I was. I, I wanted to help clean the church up. This was wrong. This was unjust, what was happening. The bishops weren't doing anything about it. I felt like, as a journalist, I needed to help be part of the solution here. What happened, though, was that I allowed my passion for justice to, to overtake me. And, uh, and it eventually, I, I always thought that my, as long as I had the arguments straight in my head, the apologetic arguments straight in my head, nothing could touch my faith. In fact, that wasn't true. The day came when the corruption was so great, I simply could not access those arguments. Those arguments seemed meaningless to me. I'm not sorry I'm no longer a Catholic uh, because God, God handed me, God showed me mercy in the Orthodox Church, but please, God, let me not be the sort of arrogant Orthodox that I was Catholic. That said, um, I realized something that Orthodoxy teaches so deeply and that Dante, I think, would completely approve of, that it's not enough to have the head converted. You know, if, you, if your mind is converted, that's good, but as long as the heart is not converted, then your conversion will be precarious. If I'd spent mm-hmm. more time as a Catholic in soup kitchens and in prayer than inside the pages of a book or engaged in apologetics arguments and thinking, my life might have gone very differently. I tell all Christians, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, do not think that just having the arguments in your head will be enough because you will lose the straight path without realizing it. Right, right. Well, I want to focus on uh, your journey as Orthodox in South Louisiana, and I want you to talk a little bit about one of the 21st century characters who features prominently in your Dantean journey. And, of course, I'm talking about Father Matthew, the parish priest. Tell our readers about this, what I read as an almost Dostoevskian council to say 500 Jesus prayers a day. And while you're in the neighborhood, I mean, tell us a little bit about why Father Matthew wasn't quite sure about your reading Dante. Thank you so much for asking about Father Matthew. He's an extraordinary young man. And they're all getting, they're all so young now. I'm 48 years old <laughs> and how, that, how that's working out. But Father Matthew came to us from Walla Walla, Washington, um, two or three years ago when we decided to start an Orthodox mission church here in, in Louisiana. Now, you, you have to go pretty far to find an Orthodox church on the bayou. And uh, so it was very unusual that we did this. But, you know, there were, turns out there were several Orthodox converts already here in our little town when we got here. These guys became friends of ours. They were cops and who read themselves into the church, the Orthodox church. So we pooled our money, and we, we called a priest. So Father Matthew came down here, met with us. We met with him. I'd say he's probably in his mid to late 30s. He himself had been a police officer. Um, he had been raised very poor from a broken family. Uh, his grandparents raised him because he, his, his parents had problems and he didn't have any contact with them. And then he became a police officer to try to bring justice to the world, and he was broken by what he saw. He told me, and I, I relate this story and how Dante, how he just could not deal with all the pain and the suffering that he had to confront every day as a cop. 
he eventually was, was broken in his pride and in his resistance, accepted Christ in a profound way, and entered the priesthood. So this is the man who came to us. He's a very intelligent man, but he also is a man who's profoundly convinced that intelligence is secondary to the heart. And this is, a, this is what orthodoxy teaches. So when Father Matthew gave me, seeing how sick I was, when he gave me a daily prayer rule of 500 Jesus prayers a day, and for your listeners who don't know the Jesus prayer, it's very simple. The simplest version is, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. This comes to us from the, the early church. Mm-hmm. And in the Orthodox tradition, what you do is you have a prayer rope and to help you keep track of the prayers, and you just put yourself, your mind in a very contemplative position. You don't think. You just put your mind into your heart, and you breathe in slowly. Say, Lord Jesus Christ, breathe out, have mercy on me. Over and over. It sounds like, what, like vain repetition, but it's not that. What it does is it disengages your mind and opens your heart up to the Holy Spirit. This is what I needed because I cannot, my mind is racing all the time. I've got to have something to fix on. To, I, I, can, I walk through the house with a book in front of me, and you, if I, there were a, a, a cavern or a wide hole in the floor of my living room, I would fall in because I can't disengage my mind. Father Matthew told me later, he said, I had to give you this prayer rule to get you out of your head. You were thinking about things way too much. You needed to practice the presence of God. And don't you know what happened? He was right, that I, over time, I began to see how just being still, finding stillness in my heart, creating that space for the Holy Spirit to operate. The, the, the prayer was like, a, like an ice axe, just chopping around the ice away from, from my heart and allowing the, the divine light, the, the warmth of, of the Holy Spirit, to make my heart work again. So it was very, very profound. And as I say in, the, in how Dante, Dante was the main, the, the main thing that God used to, to reach me and draw me out of the dark wood, this poetry of Dante. But he didn't do it alone. My Southern Baptist therapist helped me, and Father Matthew, with his spiritual counsel and with his guiding me in the prayer rule, also played an integral part. Mm-hmm. Well, one part of the book that... Maybe I shouldn't have found amusing, but I did, and I'll tell you why here in a second, was when you turned to the circle of the Sodomites. Uh, And here's why, because in your book, you spend a fair bit of time saying that people shouldn't automatically dismiss Dante at this turn. Uh, But when I teach this to evangelical college students, because they have this notion that sin probably has something to do with sex, they Mm -hmm. finally feel like they're on solid ground again with this circle. Right. But as with other sections, you read Dante's conversation with Brunetto allegorically. What does the pilgrim Dante fail to see in this episode that later on in Purgatory he is able to see? Right. Well, I, in the world I live in, in media, I've most of my life in mainstream media, to read Dante condemning homosexuality would be cause for dismissing the whole thing. I think mm-hmm. this is preposterous, but at the same time, we've seen some, uh, in reading the scholarship, contemporary scholarship about Dante, you see so many professors not wanting to believe that their, their blessed Dante was this horrible homophobic bigot. In fact, Dante was a medieval Catholic Christian. Homosexuality was a great evil in his world, as it is in the Bible. They, that cannot be denied. That said, Dante was so 
fascinating about this episode in the Circle of the Sodomites is the love and respect with which Dante meets his old mentor, Ser Brunetto, mm-hmm. who is there in the circle. And they never even talk about sex and when they meet each other. They talk about art. Because Ser Brunetto, Brunetto Latini, was one of the great public intellectuals of Florence of his day. He was a diplomat, he was a poet, he was a man of letters, uh, a very great man in his city. But what you see is Brunetto, when Brunetto sees Dante coming through, he's so excited because he knows about Dante's growing fame in Florence. And he feels very proud because his, his pupil, the man he mentored, is gaining fame. And he wants to increase Dante's fame. He tells him, follow your own star and you cannot fail to reach a port of glory. Well, the pilgrim Dante, when he hears that, he feels very, very moved by it. He feels that he's gotten the endorsement of this man he had admired so much. What the pilgrim Dante fails to see is that Brunetto is in hell. There's something wrong with him that got him there. And, and as we see in the course of the Commedia, as Dante the pilgrim only sees when he gets to the purgatory, Brunetto's sin was using his own gift for, for art, and his gifts of his intellect, his gift for writing, he used it for his own glory, not the glory of God. He used it to promote himself, not to promote the truth. What Dante sees on the mountain of purgatory, and that puts his conversation with Brunetto in certain context, is he sees how fleeting fame is. Mm-hmm. He sees that uh, if you do something just to please the masses, if you write for your own fame and riches, you're going to be forgotten one day. Nothing you write will last. And that's what, that was Brunetto's great error. You know, he only wrote to please himself and to please his audience and to build, puff himself up. Uh, and it worked for a while. But today, the only reason anybody outside of a narrow circle of scholars knows who Brunetto Latini was is because he's in a poem of <laughs> the Divine Comedy by Dante right. Alighieri, which Dante wrote for the glory of God, not for the glory of himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and and just as a a passing note, this is one of the things that I enjoy the most when I teach Dante to evangelical college students is I say, you know, okay, yes, you know, the the sodomites are sinners and they are sinners because they are sodomites. And also when you get up to the final terrace of the purgatory, you see a whole mess of them who are going to heaven. That's right. (laughs) <laughs> and, well, say, and, and two, the, I think the, the deeper point about the circle of the sodomites is not so much that sodomy is wrong, because I don't think Dante, uh, in, in his day, didn't have to really demonstrate that there was that sodomy was sinful. Everybody knew it was sinful, whether even if they did it. Mm-hmm. But what Dante is showing here is sodomy is a perversion of the creative gift. When right. Dante calls Brunetto uh, a creative sodomite, so to speak, what he's saying is. God gave him the gift of being able to create, to be like God, to be a creator, uh, but Brunetto used it in a sterile way. He used it to promote himself. Don, mm-hmm. And Dante the Poet is saying, this is what the act of sodomy is. It's a, a, a sexual act, an act that is created, that is given to us for the propagation of life, but a sodomites use it to, you know, for their own self-pleasure, and uh, it is a narcissistic act. That is what Dante accuses Brunetto of, by implication, being not only an actual sodomite, but being a, a creative sodomite, so to speak, because he used his, he wasted his uh, his seed in self-service. Mm-hmm. 
Right. It's a pretty and, and, point, don't you think? I mean, it's, it's not one that's easily grasped, and people get their backs up about you know, gay rights. I'm like, this goes so much deeper than gay rights. Oh, sure, sure. And, and that's what I tell my own students, is that until you can encompass both of those realities in your imagination, you haven't read Dante yet. No, and, and if you can't, even you may be heterosexual, but if you can't see the temptation to be a sodomite yourself in the, in the sense I'm talking about, the creative sense, then you haven't understood Dante. If you think that sodomy is just something that other people do, that gay people do, then, and that what the, the essence of what they do has nothing to do with yourself as a heterosexual, you're badly mistaken. Right, right. You, you're not off the hook, so to speak. No, no, and, and you know, that's one of the great things, too, about the comedia is everything is connected. This, um, this really hit me when reading one of the first cantos in the Inferno, where Dante, when he meets his first big sinner, so to speak, Francesca and Paolo in the circle of lust. Uh, as, as you know, Francesca and Paolo, they, they were real-life people, too, who mm-hmm. were, were uh, murdered because they were caught in adultery by Paolo's brother. Francesca had been his wife. He caught them in adultery with each other and murdered his wife and his brother. But they, those two were doomed, Francesca and her lover, are doomed to swirl around for eternity in this tempest in the circle of, of the lustful. What that's meant to show us is that the way passion works, romantic passion works, it just blows us here and there. and we, we have no solid footing. Francesca gives an account of how she got there, and as is typical in hell, she blames everybody else. It's mm-hmm. everybody's fault but her own. That's how the sinners in hell are. But one of the fascinating things to me is when she starts quoting all the books she read, the romantic books and the romantic poems she read that got her in a mindset where she chose to commit adultery, she starts quoting Dante's poetry back to himself. So early in his life, he had been a love poet and had written these these ballads and, and poems in praise of what he called Lord Love, romantic love. That was the, what they did at that time, mm-hmm. uh, the poets did. But Dante has to sit there and realize that this woman who is in hell for all eternity, she's there in part because of the words he wrote. Now, it's not his fault that she's in hell. She used her free will to give herself over to these lies, but that doesn't fully let Dante off the hook either because mm-hmm. his poetry in praise of this false god of romantic love, had been influential in, in leading her there. It made me think, back when I was a film critic at the New York Post, how much I loved to write very, very clever, ugly, biting reviews of bad movies. <laughs> and I, you know, these movies probably deserved everything I gave them, but I didn't write it. I didn't write these reviews in the right spirit. I wrote them to increase my own fame, to make my readers laugh, at how cleverly and brilliantly I could eviscerate other people's creative work. And uh, I really have to think back in repentance at how my own casual cruelty, uh, who knows what, I, what effect I had on people, if only to show them and to mislead them into thinking that being snarky and ironic was the way to fame and fortune. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's we we are all implicated in these things. Well, all, sure, sure, all implicated. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of those places where again, Dante is is very very good for the evangelical culture from which I emerge, frankly, and also where I do most of my teaching is that uh, because sexual sins are you know so 
intelligible, I guess. Either you've committed them or you haven't. Uh, students think that when they get to lust or sodomy, they've basically got this one in hand. And then, you know, you start to read and you realize that whether or not they had sex has relatively little to do with the sin nature of it. Right. So. Oh, that, that's, that's really true. And this is another thing that Dante showed me that I didn't realize, even though I'm, you know, I'm a middle-aged guy who's been a practicing Christian most of my life and not exactly unsophisticated about this stuff, but I'd, hid, I'd hidden so much from myself that Dante revealed. One of these is the, the nature of sin. I had always thought of sin as being the breaking of rules. Mm-hmm. You know, God gave us these rules, the Bible has these rules, and we're supposed to live by that code. That is true. But what Dante showed me was how sin is, at its deepest level, a deformation of love. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we miss the mark when we sin. We either love the wrong things or we love the right things in the wrong way. And for me, that, that really opened up a new way to think about my own problems. I, I knew that as far as my relationship with my family went, they loved me very much. There's no question about that. And there's no question that they are good people, some of the best people I've ever known. And yet, and yet... Why did we have this clash between us? Because I love them too. I began to see through the eyes of Dante that we loved in the wrong way. They could only love me insofar as I conformed with their idea of the good life. They didn't love the me that was. They loved the me that they thought I should be. Mm -hmm. I always said that my dad and my sister were like Confucians of the bayou. They believed that (laughs) the world had a hierarchy and that your place, my place was to be here in around the family and be just as unhappy as they are, but that's, that's your duty. Um, and I also had loved them in a disordered way. I had, as I said earlier, I'd given my dad uh, the place in my heart that where God belonged. Mm-hmm. And um, only when, if we could both subordinate our loves to the love of God Almighty and love each other through Christ, that's how we could find true harmony and love for each other. But we... We have not been able to do that. You know, we're, we're working towards that, but uh, we may never get there. But that's the only way we will ever know peace is uh, through loving each other in an ordered way, ordered by the divine logos. Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked a little bit about uh, your relationship with the Catholic Church over the years. I think late in the book, one of the most profound statements comes out, and, and, and this is from page 156, quote, The same Catholic Church that gave the world Boniface VIII also gave it Dante Alighieri, so much the better for the world, close quote. Talk to us a little bit about the understated conservatism that we hear there and also that runs throughout this book. Well, when I was, I was raised Methodist in this small town, and we weren't big churchgoers. We were Easter and Christmas Methodist and a few times during the year, but to be a Christian where I grew up was just, to be a member of this society. I think Kierkegaard, it was Kierkegaard who had the line that when you become a Christian just by being born into a certain society, Christianity ceases to exist. Mm-hmm. It, where it, where it, everyone it, is it, a Christian, nobody is a Christian. Exactly. Well, that's the kind of Christianity in which I was raised. You know, every, of course everybody's a Christian. You don't have to go to church or even think about this. You're a Christian by virtue of being born into small-town Southern Protestant society. Well, by the time I got to be... 16, 17, I'd rejected all of that. I decided that Christianity was for fools and weaklings. Uh, I wasn't prepared to take the full 
the full full responsibility for that conclusion, uh, which Nietzsche would later show me what would what would happen if you if you believe that. But I was a casual seventeen year old agnostic, knew everything there was to know about the world. And then my mom won a trip for two to Europe on a, uh, uh, a, a church raffle. And she sent me and her friend who bought the ticket with her, sent her son. And as far as I was concerned, I just couldn't wait to get to Paris and go see girls and see the places where Hemingway lived and all the beauty of the art museums. Uh, but this, the bus that we were on with a bunch of old people, it stopped on the way to Paris an hour outside the city in this cathedral town. And we were going to have to drag in there and see this old church. I was so impatient, didn't want to do it, but it was better than sitting on the bus. So I walked into the Chartres Cathedral, which, as I w- was to learn, was, was one of the crown jewels of Christianity, of Christian architecture of the high Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. I walked in there, Nathan, and I was shocked by the beauty there. When I say the shock of beauty opened me up, what I mean was there was nothing in my experience as a small-town Methodist to prepare me for the grandeur of that cathedral and the complexity. I had no words for it. I, all I knew was that there was, God was present there and that God was real, and God was speaking to me through the ordered beauty and harmonies of that cathedral. When I walked out in that church that day, I wasn't a Christian again, but I was onto something. I had seen something that was real, that I had not anticipated. And that began my long, winding pilgrimage back to faith. It happened right there in that cathedral on that day. Now, that cathedral was built about 100, 200 years before Dante wrote. It was built at a time of great corruption in the Roman Church. Mm -hmm. But God still brought that great beauty and harmony out of that messy thing that was the Church. And in the same way, when you read later, 30 years later in my life, when I was also having a, a very different crisis of faith, God used the cathedral in verse that is the Commedia to bring me back to himself. And what I was able to see is that these things, the Commedia and the Chartres Cathedral, did not just come from nowhere. And they did not come from you know, individual bursts of genius. They came out of something. They came out of the Catholic Church. They came out of a way of seeing the world and a way of living and ordering the mind and ordering the heart and ordering all reality to a vision of reality. And um, for me, as, a, as I had mentioned, I was a very devout Catholic, but the, the, the sins of the Church just tore me apart and tore that faith away from me. Mm-hmm. I can't believe what Catholics believe anymore. I just I don't have it in me. And I don't think it's actually necessary to my salvation that I, I do that. But what Dante did was help reconcile me and my heart to the Catholic Church, because he himself was a devout Catholic, but he ripped the wicked popes and the wicked priests and the corrupt churchmen. He, he raked them over the coals in the Commedia, but he never, ever doubted that the Church was what it claimed to be. He understood at a profound level the parable of the wheat and the tares, and that's something that I had to learn, because if you, there's no church you can be part of, Protestant, Orthodox, or Catholic, that does not have corruption in it, that does not have human weakness and failing. But if, if you think that all, all there is there is human weakness and failing and corruption, you are making the same, same error as people who only see goodness there. Mm-hmm. So, Very good. Anyway, 
so I, so I thank I thank God at the end for for the Catholic Church because you know it gave us Boniface VIII, as I said, who was the wicked pope who betrayed Dante, and he's the arch villain of of the uh, Commedia. But it also gave us Dante, and as I say in the book, I had to realize that my own falling away from the Catholic Church was because I had made an idol of it. After I, my dad rejected me as a teenager, we had a fairly severe rupture. I uh, went searching for substitute fathers, mm-hmm. and I found through the Catholic Church, I thought I was going to God the Father, but what I did, I mistook the patriarchs of the Church, the bishops, they were the father figures that I wanted, and I expected more from them than they could give me, just as I had expected more from my own father, my own dear father, that he was capable of giving me. God, mm-hmm. had, God broke me of that pride, and I left the Catholic Church, and I have not replaced those that false view of the Church with... Um, I have not just given it the name of orthodoxy. I can never be the or- kind of orthodox Christian that I was a Catholic Christian, and... I thank God for it. I don't know that I would have been that in that place had God not broken me profoundly. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Well, there's one more episode. I'm not sure how to segue into it, and I'm not even sure I know what to do with it, but our listeners just have to hear about Dee Dee and the Exorcist. Ah. So no clever setup from me here. Just tell us that story and how it relates to Dante. This, I live in the Deep South, so we know we have ghosts here. Um, we don't know necessarily what they are, but we know that they are. Here in my town, St. Francisville, we have one of the most haunted uh, plantation houses in America. It's always on TV. It's called the Myrtles. There were murders there in the 19th century, and they've had crazy spooky goings on. In my own family, this happened to us back in 1994. Uh, my father's name is Ray, and Ray's father, my grandfather, we called him Dee Dee. And Dee Dee was a working man and raised my dad in rural poverty. And uh, my dad had been very, very devoted to his, both of his parents. But my dad was a second-born son. Dee Dee had loved his namesake, Murphy Jr., we call, more than he loved my dad. Murphy died. My, my dad's older brother died in the 80s, had a heart attack. My dad continued to serve my grandfather very faithfully. Well, uh, my grandfather married a second time after his first wife. My grandmother died, and uh, I I don't tell this story precisely in in the book, but uh, the the, the thief was his, that I identify in the book, was his second wife. Uh, She uh, and my grandfather had lived together for 14 years until back in 1992 when they were both in the hospital. My father audited their bank accounts. He had power of attorney for my grandfather, and he found that my grandfather's second wife had been stealing money very slowly, embezzling it from his bank account for the entire period of their marriage, their 14-year marriage. My father got the evidence of that, confronted them with it when they got out of the hospital, and the wife said, you don't put that money back. Uh, you can take this old man home with you right now. said that in front of my grandfather, Dee Dee, and my, my dad had this all recorded on audio. I've heard the audio, so I know it was real. And Dee Dee said, just, just do what she says. Well, what my dad, and my dad did that because he didn't want to shame his father in front of the whole community, and he didn't want to defy his father's will. So um, for two years, my dad had to live with that. He returned the money that Rosalie had stolen. And, my, and Dee Dee had been a working man, so this was a fortune for him. It was $100,000 or so. But for him, this was all he had saved from his retirement. 
And uh, my dad stayed faithful to Dee Dee, taking him for his cancer treatments and having to put up with uh, the wife's abuse of my dad and his father. In 1994, Dee Dee died in the hospital from cancer with my dad holding his hand. And uh, it was such a relief that he died because Dee Dee had been suffering for so long. But my sister Ruthie and I were glad that Dee Dee died so he could be at peace. But also, we were so afraid that our dad was going to die before Dee Dee did because the stress of the way his dad was treating him was just too much. So I, I was living in Washington, D.C. when Dee Dee died, and I, I flew down for the funeral. We buried him in the Star Hill Cemetery near our house, and my, we came home that afternoon. My mom and dad went to take a nap because the day was exhausting. And I was sitting in my bedroom at their house working on the computer when I heard a banging on the window behind me. I ran to the window. Nothing was there. And they live out in the country, so there are no neighbors nearby. There were no bushes or anything. There was nothing there. And I just put it out of my mind. The next morning at breakfast, my dad said that he had been awake uh, uh, at midnight the night before. He couldn't sleep, a lot of emotion in those days. And he had heard a rapping along the side of the house. He went outside to see what it was. I mean, the dogs had not even stirred. And if a deer walked through the yard, the dogs barked, but they were still sleeping. <laughs> my dad said he sat down in his chair and he heard the door to his bedroom, he and my mom's bedroom, open and close. And he saw at the end of the darkened hallway a figure in white standing there. And he said, Dorothy, is that you? That's my mom. No answer. He put his glasses on and went down the hall. My mom was sleeping as soundly as she had been when he left her. So my dad, who's a very practical, you know, feet squarely planted on the earth kind of guy, said to me, what do you think's going on? Well, I told him about the rapping I heard and asked for his permission to call a Catholic priest I knew, Father Termini, down on the bayou, Bayou Pigeon. So said, he's an exorcist. Unless, can we have him come up here and just bless the house? Well, my Methodist daddy didn't have any problem with that because he was so unnerved by what had happened. He said, that's, that's fine. Hmm. But call Father Termini. He said, we can be there in a couple of days. And he was coming with this woman named Shelby. Uh, these folks are all dead now, but Shelby was a was a Cajun grandmother who had a real spiritual gift. Uh, she was very ca charismatic. And Father um, Termini said, don't tell Shelby that your grandfather has died. We don't want to lead her mind in any way. So when they got, the night before they got there, my dad was at breakfast the next morning, and he was just white as, as a ghost. He said that he had been lying in bed the night before, and this was August, so he slept with his T-shirt off, and he was awakened by something clinging to his back. He said, I could feel the fingers around my shoulders. I could feel the soft flesh against my back. And when I woke up and realized that I wasn't dreaming this, this was happening, I pushed myself up. He said, I felt it let go. And there was a sound like a hiss and a pop, and it was gone. Well, Father Termini arrived with Shelby. She began to go around our house praying, praying, praying. And uh, she approached the other side of my mom and dad's bedroom, bed, and uh, she began to sweat and she began to tremble as she approached a, a table bedside table on which there were photographs now i had just seen her do this about five minutes before when she had been in my bedroom where i first heard the banging and she said there's something in that closet that we need and her face had flushed red she began to sweat even though the house was air conditioned and finally she said i can't stay in this room anymore but keep looking in that closet we need something in there so my mom kept looking in the closet i followed her into the parents bedroom and watched her nearly faint as she approached the bedside table. She began handling photos on each 
each photo on the table, there were about 10 in frames, and most of them she sat right back down, but three of them she dropped on the bed as if they were burning her hands. She looked at them and said, what's, what's the significance of these photos? And I looked at them and I said, well, there's a photo of my first grandmother, my, my grandmother, my, Dee Dee's first wife. He, uh, Dee Dee died last week. Uh, there's a photo of Dee Dee's mother and there's a photo of Dee Dee's grandmother. She said, well, don't you have one of Dee Dee? I said, we did. I don't know what happened to it. She said, find it. I think that's important. So they all went back to the living room with the priest and began to pray for the Lord's guidance. My mother let out a gasp from the bedroom, ran out of the bedroom uh, where she had been digging in the closet with a framed photograph of Dee Dee. She said it was in the closet behind a board where Shelby had said there was something we needed. Shelby put her hands on it and prayed and whispered something in Father Turbany's ear. He looked at my dad and said, it's him and he can't move on. He needs you to forgive him or to get him forgiveness. And my dad's eyes got big. I said, Daddy, tell him the story about what happened with the, the, the thief and all that. So my dad told him the story, and the priest said to him, Do you forgive your father? My, my father said, I do. Well, they said prayers, and that was the end of it. We had no more hauntings at our house. Uh, it was a profound moment, though, Nathan, because you know, we don't have anything in our theology that prepared us for that. <laughs> I'll uh, say. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, the thing is, my, my, what do you do with that? I mean, I, I talked later to a pretty accomplished Catholic theologian. I said, look, Catholics believe in purgatory. Perhaps this was some level of purgatory. I don't know. And, the, and he, this theologian said, you know, I'm a priest, and I don't really know either, but I know this is true. This priest was British. He said, I've spent some pretty hairy nights in castles back in, in the old country where you know there is a spirit present. Is it a demon? Is it the, uh, a ghost that can't find its way to God? Who knows? I think the important lesson here, whether you believe in ghosts or not, as a Christian, the important lesson here is that we have ties that bind us across the barriers, the frontiers of death. We as Christians, whether we're Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox, believe in the communion of saints. We believe that those who have gone on continue to, to, to be with the Lord. They continue to live with us and pray with us, and that we are part of the same community. Time is an illusion in that way. I don't know what happened to, to Dee Dee, why he could not yet move on. I think maybe it was an extraordinary gift of God that he allowed my grandfather to manifest in some way, to reach to his son and realize after death how he had so deeply wronged my father. Mm -hmm. that, uh, and, and to have my father... Get, there's some spiritual law here that, my, that he needed my dad to let that reign of, of uh, justice go so he could, Jadidi could move on. And I'll tell you this, here's a story that did not make it into the book. The old woman who stole all the money, uh, four months after she, uh, after we buried Didi and we resolved all this, I went back to Washington, D.C. and got on with my, my life and career. It was a week before Christmas that year. This was mm -hmm. 1994. I was getting ready to come home. The phone rings. It's my dad. He had been in the hardware store in town that day and said, I ran into a cop from town. He said, Mr. Dreer, what is the problem with, and he, he mentioned the, my grandfather's widower, widow. And my dad said, we haven't seen her since we buried him. There's a lot of bad blood there. The cop said, oh, we see her all the time. There's doors opening and closing in her house. She's calling us saying, get oh, over here. <laughs> yeah, and, and cops said, we were over there just, just yesterday. She called us and said someone was in her front yard 
throwing things on the ground. And we sent a car over there, and that old lady was standing out there in the yard, scared to death. There were butterfly wings all over the yard. And the cop had seen this himself. My dad calls, and he's amused by it. He says, she's being haunted. So, Daddy, we have to resolve this. So I made a plan to go see the old woman when I got home for Christmas. And I called Father Termini and said, would you come pray with her and let's resolve this? And he said he would. But I knew that if he came there, he would tell her very straightforwardly, if you, have, if you will not return the money you stole and ask forgiveness and repent, you're not going to know peace. So I went to be the to prepare her for that. When I went to see her, Nathan, um, mm-hmm. she lived in the middle of town. I knocked on her door. She was in her 80s, but when she answered the door, she looked like she was 110. This is clearly a woman who had not had a good night's sleep in four months. Mm-hmm. Came in, sat down and talked with her, and she told me, yes, it's true. I've been banging on my, my, my wall at night. A voice will speak to me. I'm like, well, what does the voice say? She wouldn't tell me. She said, doors opening and closing, and I told her all I could tell her is that this is what happened to us, and this is how, how we dealt with it. Father Termini is willing to come pray with you. She wouldn't do it. She would not see him because I think she was haunted by her own guilt. She eventually moved out of that house, moved into a nursing home in the city in Baton Rouge, and died there with the same stuff still happening. I don't huh. know where she is, but I, I still pray for her. It's hard to pray for her knowing the destruction that she wrought in our family, but in the end, I cannot believe that God would desire us to be uh, in disorder. And I know God wants peace to be there. So insofar as it's possible after death, I pray for it. Now, listeners, aren't you glad I had him tell that story? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's... Go ahead. Well, well, Rod, I've been steering the conversation for the most part up to this point. In the spirit of hospitality, I want to offer you the last word, so... What do you want our listeners to leave thinking about, whether in terms of Dante, Eastern Orthodoxy, conservatism, crunchiness, whatever else? You've got the last word. Speak it to our listeners. Thank you. I I hope listeners will give my book a chance and will see that God can use anything and will use everything to bring his people back to him. God reached out to me when I was lost in a dark wood of my own ego or my own my own will, and my own idolatry. He, he used the shock of beauty. I talked about the Shark Cathedral being a shock of beauty. He used the shock of beauty of this medieval poem to break through my own arrogance, my own pride, and my own blindness. And he can do the same thing for anybody who will open themselves up to that beauty. The Divine Comedy was, was written by a man who had suffered greatly. The real-life Dante had been exiled, thrown out of his city in the middle of his life, He had his money taken from him, and the people of his city said, if you come back here, we'll burn you alive. So he never did go home again. The Divine Comedy is written, it's a poem, it's an account of a man in exile who's trying to figure out what went wrong in his life and how can it be made right again. What he determines is that things can never be made completely right in this mortal life because we are all pilgrims. We all belong with the Lord in heaven. The best we can do, and the only thing we can do, is open our hearts to Him and to be more and more and more absorbed into the life of God, changed by divine grace, changed by love, and work to make our lives here on this earth a little more harmonious. Work, not something we can do ourselves, but just by, by getting over our own pride and humility and repentance, allowing the grace of the Holy Spirit to work on us. And this is not something just for elites. This is not something for people who are, 
who are monks or who are special saints. This is not something for people who are literary critics who can penetrate the, the mysteries of this poem. This is for ordinary people, because as Dante said, he wrote this. He wrote this in the Italian language, not Latin, not the language of scholars. He wrote it in the Italian language because he wanted to reach people, to change their lives. What you learn at the end of the Commedia, at the, which is one of the most brilliant and complex works of the intellect that has ever been created by a man, what you learn is it's not ultimately about the mind. It's about the conversion of the heart. That is a deeply Christian message, and that is a message that will resonate with people from all walks of life, wherever they live and wherever they are in their own spiritual journey. Because I tell you, you go through the Commedia, it, all of life is in there. You, your walk through the Commedia will not be the same as my walk, because mm -hmm. your sins are not my sins, but we all sin. And you will find the best part of yourself and the worst part of yourself in the pages of this poem, and you will not emerge out the other side unchanged. You will be absolutely changed by it. And I, I hope you could hear how excited I am about this, because so many of us feel that we're fated to live out the stories that we've been given. We're not. God has a plan for our lives, and God can reach us through the art and the experience of this man, Dante Alighieri, so we can write our own stories and give it. And so our own stories will be not a tragedy with a sad ending, but a comedy with a happy ending, as Dante's was. He died in exile. He never saw his home again. But I have to believe that he died happy because his heart rested with the Lord. Very good. Well, listeners, the book is called How Dante Can Save Your Life. Rod, thank you very much for coming on the show. What a pleasure it's been. I, I love talking about Dante, and uh, I almost feel like an evangelist. <laughs> I never thought I would be the sort of person who would, could speak so emphatically about something, something that I've seen. But I, I tell you, I, I'm not a scholar. I'm a journalist, but I'm a witness. I mm -hmm. witnessed the life-changing power of the Spirit of God working through this poem, and I'm so eager to share it with people and say, come see this, come see this too, come see this and be changed. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you two listeners for downloading this and jumping in on this conversation with us. Christian Humanist Profiles is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and this is Nathan Gilmore on behalf of Rod Dreher saying... Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.